Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracy, an editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we now call the long war. Today, I have a very special guest, a friend of the program and, and someone I consider a personal friend. That is Edmund Fitton Brown. He is the outgoing coordinator of the United Nations Security Council Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. For those of you who've been listening for a long time, um, you know, Edmund has been uh, one of our favorite guests. Uh, we get him on anytime we can. Um, Edmund, welcome to Generation Jihad. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. If you're listening and not aware, there was a recently the sanctions and monitoring team issued a report. Um, I believe it was July 19th. Is that right, Edmund? That's correct. Yep. Yep. Uh, on the overall state of Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. It's a fascinating report. And I'll say this, the, the timing of this report couldn't have been better. This report was eerily prescient. If you haven't read it, it it's basically was saying Zawahiri's alive. He's well. Doesn't explicitly state he's in Afghanistan, but notes that Al Qaeda is doing well inside of Afghanistan. So less than two weeks after this report, of course, is issued, the U.S. kills Ayman Zawahiri in Afghanistan in a safe house that's purportedly run by Surajuddin Haqqani, who's one of two deputy Taliban emirs, as well as the Taliban's interior ministry. And this is a safe house in Kabul. This report, you know, basically is, is warning the world that al-Qaeda has regrouped inside of Afghanistan and Again, the U.S. launches a strike and kills Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. It, it just The timing of this couldn't have been any, any more perfect. And we're going to get into the detail of, of your team's fascinating report, Edmund. But, you know, given the speed of which all this played out, you know, uh, from the issuing of the report to the killing of Zawahiri, how, how do you and your team feel about this? Do you feel vindicated? Do you, I know how this works. Like it's, it's, you, you write something and then it plays out almost exactly like you, you explained it. It's kind of curious of what do you think when this sort of thing happens? Well, um, thanks, Bill, um, for that question. I mean, it's a, it's a good feeling, of course, to, um, you know, to have called it right um, and vindicated yes, in a way. Um, the, our reporting has generally met with good feedback. I've rarely had to defend it against um, much hostile um, questioning but of course, the big exception to that has always been the Taliban themselves, because every time that we report, the Taliban have always uh, immediately gone on the record and said that we know nothing and that we're wrong and uh, that we're, uh, you know, that we're deliberately um, uh, slandering them. Um, and of course, they've always maintained this ridiculous denial that Al Qaeda is present in Afghanistan and that there are foreign fighters uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and now, um, you know, that uh, those those Taliban denials are comprehensively um, disproven. And, and that's not just um, it's not just schadenfreude on my part. This is actually important because um, if people are going to figure out how to work, work alongside this um, situation in Afghanistan, then the Taliban need to be forced to tell the truth. And one of the benefits of what has just happened is that it's going to make it much harder for them not to tell the truth. Yeah. One of the, one of my frustrations um, with covering this over the years, reporting on it and analyzing it 
is there's just a, the preponderance of the evidence is just that Al Qaeda has been in Afghanistan and it's been sheltered by the Taliban. It's been supported. Your reports detail this beautifully. I don't think there's, it couldn't be done better. You, you make my job so much easier. We get our information differently than you do. If your listeners are not aware, Edmund and his team, they rely on member states for information. I'm overgeneralizing here. They do their own analysis as well. They're getting, looking at reporting. I'm looking at a little bit differently from open source, from what the Al Qaeda itself is saying, and, you know, from some sources, but we come to the same conclusions here. And it's really, really frustrating that despite what we're saying about the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship, how it's enduring, how it's active to this day that people still want to do things like negotiate with the Taliban. That happened to leave Afghanistan and say that Al Qaeda is finished. And President Biden said this. He said, Al Qaeda is gone. Why do we need to be there? And yet within one year, he's launching a strike and touting the killing of Zawahiri. You got to put those two things together. So this isn't a political attack. Again, the Trump administration made errors. The Obama administration made errors. The, the Bush administration made errors that, that brought us to this, this point. We're warning them all the time. That relationship is there. And yet, even now, people want to release $3.5 billion in funds to the Taliban, even after we killed Zawahiri in Afghanistan. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Edmund? I just think it's very important that this is a very high-profile um, revelation of the real situation inside. and <clears throat> I. I don't want to be critical of people who are trying to figure out how to work with the new reality in Afghanistan, particularly if you're the neighboring countries, if you're Uzbekistan, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're Tajikistan, um, if you're Pakistan, any of, any of the neighbors. Um, they've got to kind of figure out a modus vivendi with the neighbor. You know, the, you, can't, you can't sort of just wish the Taliban away. So I understand that, and I understand that um, I understand that people have to try to engage in some way on a practical level. But it's not helpful to develop those relations against the backdrop of denial and that element of denial, wishful thinking, which I think existed about the Taliban as potentially sincere partners, particularly on security issues, counterterrorism. Um, it's really important that that, that, that has been uh, blown away by this development, because in the end, the only way that people will successfully interact with the Taliban is if they have an accurate understanding of them and they put the necessary pressure on them. And if they work together in order to put that pressure on them. Excellent points, Edmund. It is difficult to fault countries like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. I mean, look, Pakistan is the enabler of the Taliban. So, you know, I think they kind of get what they paid for here. I guess I'm more referring to the United States and NATO countries that really should know better and not go into this with blinders. The report has fascinating information on both the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Given recent events, as well as we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, today we're going to focus in on the Al-Qaeda, the Taliban in Afghanistan that's that's embedded within this report. We're going to turn around and talk to Edmund at a later date and focus in on the information of the Islamic State. I strongly recommend you read this report in its entirety. It's really, really, again, the, the information on the Islamic State is just so fascinating. We'll, we will get to that in the future, Edmund. But I want to start with this statement from the report. I'm quoting here. Quote, member states continue to judge that ISIL or the Islamic State 
poses the more immediate threat in this regard, although some regard al-Qaeda as the more dangerous group in the long term, end quote. I happen to agree with this assessment. Edmund, what are your thoughts on this? What brings you to this conclusion? So as you say, Bill, it's, uh, what we say is always based on um, information that we're getting from member states, uh, counterterrorism agencies, uh, intelligence services, security services, national security authorities. Um, and so then we, 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 we sort of synthesize that information and draw these kind of conclusions. So most member states agree that the more immediate threat is from, uh, from uh, I, I'll call it ISIL, you know, of course we can call it by many different names, but I'll, I'll call it ISIL. Um, and that, is, that reflects the fact that ISIL has been the, uh, the more immediate threat for some time. Now, ISIL, the threat from ISIL is significantly diminished, but where it is still felt is really through propaganda and through inspiration um, of attacks in what we call non-conflict zones. So, you know, if you're, you know, if, if you're if you're looking at the terrorist threat in somewhere like Berlin or London, um, then you're more likely to see an attack that is inspired by ISIL propaganda, and 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 that will then be claimed by ISIL as being, you know, something that they uh, are responsible for. So we're not talking about the kind of complex directed attacks that ISIL used to be able to carry out because they had to give up that capability uh, while they were being uh, under the hammer in Iraq and then Syria during that military defeat. They, were, they, were, they had to give up the developed uh, external operational capability that they had had, but they still remain very threatening in terms of this inspired threat. And also um, increasingly member states are talking about a sort of a a more rudimentary enabled threat where you might have a single um, ISIL operative, uh, you know, in a secure location with a smartphone who's able to uh, offer some level of uh, instruction, facilitation, uh, direction. Um, and all of that adds up to, you know, quite a serious concern, even though the threat level is lower than it was. Now, Al-Qaeda is not quite constituted for that. Al-Qaeda's propaganda tends to be less um, effective than ISIL's. And um, Al-Qaeda has for a long time uh, concentrated overwhelmingly on embedding itself in conflict zones. So they, you know, what they're doing in places like Somalia in the Western Sahel, you know, Mali and Burkina Faso, um, in, uh, in Yemen, um, and a range of other places, um, is that they're they're getting they're becoming parties to these local conflicts, and of course they pose a threat in those locations. But in terms of their um, projection of a threat um, against the West or into non-conflict zones, um, that's been characterised by by a, a very high level of strategic patience. And I suppose that that will that will be the legacy of Zawahiri now that he's dead. Uh, it has been that sort of strategic patience, which. Are, at one point during the rise of ISIL, people saw as real weakness. But after ISIL fizzled out and ran into its own difficulties because its approach had been so reckless, just taking on all comers, um, it starts to look more like a long-term game plan. And certainly the, the, the intent of al-Qaeda has never wavered from that mission that led to 9-11. Um, but... They didn't want to rush things. They wanted to preserve their capability. 
and uh, they want to pose a threat when the time is right. So I think when you put these two sort of um, sets of analysis together, then yes, if a if a bomb was to go off tomorrow, or if there was going to be a you know a, either a vehicle attack or a bladed weapon attack uh, in Europe, um, it's overwhelmingly likely that it would be ISIL inspired. But um, in terms of the next big attack with, um, you know, which uh, long planned with strategic impact, it's less clear now that that would be ISIL rather than Al-Qaeda. And it's quite possible that in a few years' time, it'll be Al-Qaeda that is more successfully embedded um, and, uh, and sustained its ability to pose a future threat than ISIL. I concur with you, Edmund, on the actual terrorism threat. The other reason why I believe that Al-Qaeda is more dangerous is that its caliphate building project, it takes a long view of it, right? It's going to build its emirates before declaring the caliphate and its willingness to work with local groups that may not be 100% on board with the Al-Qaeda project. It doesn't require, like the Islamic State, a local insurgency leader who will work with them to swear allegiance to Zawahiri, for instance. As long as they share the same goals or working towards the same goal, they will work together. I always say that the Islamic States, this is a very simplified version of it, but it's what I use to, you know, to, to really dumb this down. The Islamic State's strategy is caliphate now, right? They flashed on the scene, declared the caliphate, whereas Al-Qaeda's build it and they will come. Yeah, you could even, I agree with you, Bill, and I think you could, you could even say that there's a little bit of an internal contradiction in the ISIL model, because it really is very much a, an Iraqi stroke Syrian uh, entity, and it's very dictatorial. Um, and yet, of course, because of its difficulties in Iraq and Syria, it's become heavily dependent on propaganda generated by the remote provinces. Um, so, you know, a lot of their propaganda is coming out of Africa, um, some, some of it's coming out of Afghanistan. Um, and I think there's an inherent contradiction there where the remote provinces, you know, to some degree are going to say, well, you know, what's in it for us? We seem to be doing all of the work. Um, and yet, uh, yet the idea, the idea that we would have any real say in the way that ISIL is, uh, is run, uh, is, 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 is fanciful. So I, I don't think that contradiction has really surfaced yet. But I think Al-Qaeda has the more elastic and probably the more durable model. It's never a zero-sum game. The Al-Qaeda model works generally well, except in Iraq and Syria where it did it, right? And that gave rise to the Islamic State. The Islamic State model certainly, again, I'm using dumbed-down terms here, really appeals to red-blooded, mad jihadist, right? Who wants to do something now, who wants results now. In some ways, I think that served Al-Qaeda's goals. It made the Islamic State the lightning rod while it continued to patiently work on its caliphate project. You know, each model has had its benefits and drawbacks. To me, someone with strategic patience, that long-term vision, you know, a willingness to compromise to a degree. And this is what we've seen with Afghanistan. We've seen in places like Somalia and Mali. You could flip a coin and portions of those countries might be fully jihadist controlled at some point. That's what worries me more. So that's why I always I look at the Al-Qaeda threat, at least at this point in time, as being more dangerous in the long term. Your report noted at the time, right? And this is the only dated thing in the report, but it isn't wrong. 
I'm going to quote from it. Al-Qaeda's leadership prospects have eased and Ayman al-Zawari is confirmed to be alive and communicating freely, end quote. Tell us about, he was reported to have been dead in 2020. I was highly skeptical of this at the time, but what led your team to come to the conclusion that he was alive and communicating freely? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's worth sort of also going back to one or two of our previous reports, because we have said that he was in Afghanistan in the past. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, as you say, um, that the wording that we've used has not, you know, has, uh, has varied sometimes from, from report to report. It was our clear understanding that he was in Afghanistan. And it was clear, and I think what we were trying to express in the report was that ever since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan just under a year ago, um, it was clear that that had had a direct effect on Zawahiri's circumstances. In other words, you know, no longer is he having to hide from, uh, you know, a, a, an Afghan government that is hostile to him uh, and its international partners who are pursuing counter-terrorist operations against uh, against Al Qaeda leadership in Afghanistan. And of course, you, Bill, you, docu- you documented very, very well uh, over the years the number of Al Qaeda seniors who were killed in Afghanistan, co-located with the Taliban, again, you know, proving beyond any doubt at all that 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 relationship has always been close and that the Taliban denials have always been untrue. Um, So we then had this very clear change in the Zawahiri communications. It used to be that we would see Zawahiri communications that were they weren't dated, but they were, you could tell from an app from analyzing them that they were old. Um, and uh, sometimes that would happen at a time when it looked as if Al-Qaeda were trying to sort of stress his relevance. And, um, but then they would do it in a rather ham-fisted way and you would end up with something, you know, he'd be saying something about Myanmar um, that was, that was, that was, you know, before the military coup that was, you know, that was, that was, that was, and you thought, well, you're using old footage and that's, you know, you're trying to persuade people that he's still, you know, a, a present force guiding Al-Qaeda, but you're actually doing it in a way that begs questions and even asks, gets people to say, well, is he even alive if they're using this old footage? And then that gradually shifted. Uh, and it did shift a little bit, I think, uh, early last year. But the main shift happened after the Taliban took over. Uh, and instead of us being in a position where we're saying, OK, we, we now we now have we can now deduce from this video that he was alive a year ago. All of a sudden, you could tell that he was alive now, that he was talking about things that had only happened a few weeks ago. And the analyzing the video, you could also see that it was uh, that the, the videos were being made more easily made under more comfortable circumstances. And so we had concluded and we made the point in our report that the Taliban's takeover had led to a dramatic easing in his situation, an ability for him to communicate both both more currently and uh, and more persuasively, and that this was increasing his effectiveness as the leader of al-Qaeda because he would be much more visible and credible to his supporters. Now, we believed him to be in Afghanistan. We had no reason to believe that he was in Kabul. So that came as a shock when uh, when the American operation took place in Kabul. We didn't know that he was in Kabul. 
but it was no surprise to us at all that he was in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. No surprise at all that he was in Afghanistan. I'm going to quote from the report again to drive home what Edmund just said, and here's what the report states. Member states note that al-Zawari's apparent increased comfort and ability to communicate has coincided with the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and the consolidation of power of key al-Qaeda allies within their de facto administration. Um, you know, and again, so the report this time didn't explicitly state that, uh, and that's end quote there, by the way, the report didn't explicitly state that, that Zawari was in Afghanistan. So uh, Edmund and I had breakfast in New York City at a, a great little diner um, on the West side. Um, and uh, we discussed this. I remember the first thing I said to Edmund, one of the first things was, so you guys didn't say it, but might have read the lines here that Zawahiri is in Afghanistan and Edmund smiled and he, he said, Yes, Bill, that, that is correct. And, um, is there a reason why it wasn't explicitly stated this time? You, you sort of, I think you had mentioned that he, I know you had mentioned that you guys had said it at the, uh, in the past. Were member states not willing to say this or is there something behind that? Nothing behind it at all, Bill. It's just our modus operandi. You know, when we get information, we use it. Um, but if there's, if there's nothing new to say, if we're basically saying that there's been no change, um, then, um, I mean, it's interesting to go back over that text and and to say, well, perhaps we should have been a little bit more explicit. We had been before. We'd said he was in Afghanistan before. Um, we tend to report changes of status. Um, good example of that is, you know, the case of, um, uh, you know, one of the potential successors to uh, Zawahiri, um, Saif al-Adil, um, who, who is, who is uh, believed to be in Iran. Now, um, we could have said that in every single report, over the, you know, we write three reports a year and we could have said it in every single one of those reports, but we tend only to say these things when when something new happens, when there's a change. And so sometimes it's just implicit. Um, but I, I hope that, you know, as you say, once you, when, when you read the, um, uh, the material about the uh, Hakanis, the people working with him, the ease of his circumstances, I hope that, I hope that was reasonably clear from the report. We certainly, oh, yes. we certainly didn't mean to leave it ambiguous. No, and this was one of those ones where I kicked myself after we we met. I had said, "Darn, I should have just contacted Edmund about that, right? I should have asked the asked the question. I know you would have given me, you would have told me. Yes, we believe he's still in Afghanistan. I just thought it was interesting, you know, given the timing of this and and how it works. And it's uh, you know, maybe I'm a geek, but I like to understand how the inner workings of you gathering your information and putting out the report. Yeah, that certainly is no criticism. I was kind of curious of just how, you know, how this all works. And it's, uh, it's really good to know how the, the reporting, um, uh, you know, how you do your reporting and how you do your analysis. Um, one in- quick question on that statement. You said um, consolidation of power of key Al-Qaeda allies within their de facto administration. Obviously, the Haqqani network would be one of those key allies. Can you name any others? I mean, it's mainly the Haqqani network. I, there are, there are. I mean, it's a complex situation, as you know, in Afghanistan. You know, the Taliban is a pretty complex entity as well. Um, so, I mean, it's, that's not to say that there are not sort of smaller groups or or factions that are aligned with the Taliban um, that that have a role in this sort of thing. Remember that the Haqqanis are. I think it's important to think of the Haqqanis as being like a um, uh, a tactically autonomous. Um, part of the Taliban, which they have many of the features of a sort of a uh, of an intelligence um, organization, um, and of course they use proxies and they they're comfortable with working with uh, with with sort of uh, 
uh, groups or, 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 or tribes or factions that are um, aligned with them on, on, on some issues. So I don't want to say that it's a sort of um, purely Sirajuddin Haqqani uh, or purely a couple of named Haqqanis dealing with uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, I think it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But they are key. And of course, um, one of the things that's been very helpful in the US public statements that we've seen since the killing of Zawahiri uh, has been this very explicit uh, reference to the role of the Haqqanis uh, in looking after Zawahiri in Kabul and then indeed uh, in uh, cleaning up the site uh, after the attack, uh, after, after Zawahiri was killed, you know, the uh, Haqqani uh, uh, enablers uh, were involved in sort of um, uh, sanitizing the site, presumably in a, in, you know, as part of the damage limitation uh, exercise. So, yes, I mean, we should be clear that the Haqqani network is the key uh, entity in this, not the only one, but the key entity. And Sirajuddin Haqqani, who, as you say, is the de facto interior minister of Afghanistan, the head of the Haqqani network, the deputy emir of the Taliban, uh, he uh, is personally the most important single figure in this. Yeah, I could not agree more about Sirajuddin Haqqani. It's, you know, I always, I guess one of my... Um, the hyper focus on the Hakanis, which is extremely important. And I'm not trying to, you know, always just sort of bothers me because it, I think it gives a lot of analysts reason to just say, well, it's just the Hakanis if we could just cleave, but it isn't. There's guys like Mullah Zakir and Mullah Fasi Houdin, um, who was a, who is now the, the chief of staff of the, the Taliban's military. He's from Badakhshan. He's a Tajik. Um, these are all, and I could just go on and on. There's other individuals, Aminullah, and, um, who are all, you know, uh, deeply in bed with the Al Qaeda Taliban project, who, you know, obviously not quite as influential, um, as the Haqqanis. I would argue that Surajuddin Haqqani is the most influential Taliban leader, more so than Mullah Habitullah, more so than Mullah, uh, who's the emir of the Taliban, Mullah Yakub, who's Mullah Omar's son. Um, and, and also the defense minister. Um, one thing to note that, um, the, uh, key positions within the defense ministry are held by key members of the Haqqani network, uh, Siraj's, uh, uh, Surajuddin Haqqani's, uh, you know, his, uh, his allies staff key positions within the defense ministry as well. I'm not saying that there's, you know, uh, a conflict between the two. I actually think the two probably work pretty well, closely well, but the, the Haqqanis to me always just are, they're the easiest one to point to with the Al Qaeda Taliban relationship, but they're, they're just not the only ones. Yeah. So, um, another interesting tidbit from this report. Um, it says, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to quote. Uh, here, uh, Al Qaeda enjoys greater freedom in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, but confines itself to advising and supporting the de facto authorities. Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, and uh, it's a little sidebar here. That's Al Qaeda's branch in South and Central Asia is reported to have 180 to 400 fighters, primarily from Bangladesh, India, Myanmar, and Pakistan. AQIS fighters are represented at the individual level amount among Taliban combat units, end quote. Edmund, that's uh, not anything really all that new, um, something I've reported on for well over a decade that Al-Qaeda was embedding itself, uh, the Taliban military, as military trainers and advisors and in small levels, military units. Um, what does this say about the Al-Qaeda-Taliban relationship? 
again, it's, it's, it's another sort of facet of the relationship. It's another reason why um, we were very clear that the relationship remained very close, um, a partnership, really. Um, not a partnership of equals, of course. The Taliban is much bigger. Um, Al-Qaeda pledges allegiance to uh, Hibatullah rather than the reverse. But still, it is a partnership. It's based on you know, long-standing, uh, long-standing fighting together. Um, uh, the, the, the ideologies of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are not the same, but there's a very, very strong mutual respect between the two. And so um, to have uh, the significant number of AQIS people who are who are actually you know played a part, they actually fought uh, alongside the Taliban in the takeover of Afghanistan last year, just adds to their credibility uh, and their um, honored status uh, inside Afghanistan, and was another reason why it was never credible that the Taliban would. Um, really clamped down on al-Qaeda. You know, the, the, I think, you know, the best that um, Western counter-terrorists were hoping for, I think, or Western policymakers were hoping for, uh, was that perhaps, you know, the Taliban would, um, would embrace al-Qaeda in a way that was not just a protective embrace, but also a controlling embrace, you know, that it would uh, effectively um, uh, prevent al-Qaeda from doing things that would... Uh, would, would, would embarrass or cause problems for the Taliban. And I think that's, that's probably true still. Um, but uh, but, but that, that, I think that's as far as, as ever looked realistic. The idea that they would arrest them or expel them or hand them over to uh, other governments who wanted to uh, bring them to justice, that, 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 that was never, um, never a credible outcome. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, you had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo under the Trump administration literally state, and this put the word quote in quotes, destroy Al Qaeda. Um, I, you know, Tom Jocelyn and I, we said that this was just not going to happen. And I think history has certainly proven this to be correct. Um, moving on to, and you had, you had uh, touched on this. You'd said, I'm going to read again, quote from the report. Al Qaeda is not viewed as posing an immediate international threat from its safe haven in Afghanistan. Very key right there. Safe haven in Afghanistan. Clearly you and, and the, the sanctions and monitoring team, uh, agree that Afghanistan is a safe haven. Uh, continuing with the quote, because it lacks external operation cap capability and does not currently wish to cause the Taliban international difficulty or embarrassment. You alluded to that or you stated that in the previous statement. I just wanted to drive that point home. I couldn't agree more. I think the, the bigger issue here, um, external operations capability, I, I, you know, we can debate that. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take the report at its word. I suspect more that this, this is more of an issue of not, a, not causing the Taliban problems as they work to consolidate their control and, and gain international recognition. Um, uh, just your thoughts on that. Eddie. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Bill. So, I mean, Al Qaeda is, um, it's a sophisticated organization. We've already talked about the fact that it's, um, it's got this strategic patience. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's managed to embed itself around the world uh, in various conflicts. And um, these, uh, these uh, different affiliates of, of Al-Qaeda, they, you know, they work together pretty well, or at least they work towards a sort of a common cause, I would say, they, whilst remaining sort of very tactically 
uh, autonomous. And so Al-Qaeda can use its presence in different countries for different purposes. I think the safe haven in Afghanistan is extremely important to them, A, because it, it's, it's where their top leadership is based. And you, need, you need somewhere for your top leadership to be based. So you've got, you know, at least until Zawahiri was killed, you had Zawahiri um, in Afghanistan. Um, they also had that, uh, they have that, we mentioned the uh, AQIS affiliate, which is important to them. Um, and what I think we expected would happen, and I think still expect will happen, is that with that safe haven, they will be able to use uh, the platform in Afghanistan for various purposes, but they're more likely to be regrouping, training, uh, fundraising, recruiting, those sort, of, uh, those sort of functions which are essential, um, but which don't directly lead to external operations. Now, in terms of external operations, we should also distinguish between cross-border operations and sort of um, ambitious, distant uh, international operations. And so if you look around the Al-Qaeda affiliates, um, you can see that Al-Shabaab is a particularly good example of, a, of an affiliate that, that, that poses um, uh, a constant cross-border threat. You know, the threat that Al-Shabaab poses, in, especially in Kenya, um, is very, very well established. And um, I think there's a, an interesting overlap there between the sort of the Al-Qaeda global agenda, which should include international attacks, and what is usually the agenda of a regional affiliate, which tends to be more local or based on the immediate region. Um, and uh, I think there's a small amount of tension there in the sense of making sure that um, you're looking after the interests of both the global leadership and the affiliate. And in the case of Al-Shabaab, so you, you can point mainly to attacks in Kenya and generally to activity in Somalia and around Somalia. Um, but of course, there was the case of the, uh, of the guy who was training to be a pilot in the Philippines. And you think, well, that looks like, uh, you know, that's, that's, that, that's, that looks like a, a much more international threat that was incubating there. Um, in the case of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, they're very active in Yemen. There's been a lot of um, skirmishes between them and, oddly enough, between them and uh, ISIL in Yemen, um, between them and the Houthis in Yemen. Um, but um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, of course, used to be very well known for its, uh, its threat to international civil aviation because they had, they had the famous uh, master bomb maker, Assyri, uh, until, he was, until he was taken out in a counterterrorism operation. Um, and so, again, you know, there's this, there was this uh, long-established uh, international threat in Yemen, but that's been suppressed. Um, partly by the death of Assyria and partly by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula being just struggling to hold its head above water. It didn't stop it from still from uh, inspiring the, uh, the um, uh, Pensacola attack, of course. So, you know, there's an, there's, there, is a, there is a threat. Um, and uh, you, can, you can sort of look across at the various other um, branches of Al-Qaeda and there's always an inclination towards um, projecting a threat more remotely. So in Syria, Haras al-Din, which is also sometimes known as al-Qaeda in Syria, um, they also were uh, looking at external attacks, but they didn't manage to bring anything off. And I think what you have there is an organization that has a long-established intent, and it could grow that capability in any of these locations, 
but it depends on local conditions. And up to now, at least in recent years, uh, it hasn't really manifested other than in a cross-border form. I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad, and our guest today is Edmund Fitton-Brown. He's the outgoing coordinator of the United Nations Security Council's analytical support and sanctions monitoring team. Um, we're discussing the recent report um, and uh, from the United Nations uh, analytical support and sanctions monitoring team, and we're honing in on the al-Qaeda and uh, particularly the Afghanistan Taliban aspect, uh, given the death of Zawahiri. Edmund, I, I agree with that. And I always think that something that is lost um, in the analysis of, you know, the near versus the far enemy, right? Al-Qaeda's local operations versus its external operations is that the two support each other. And I, 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 I'm of the belief that Al-Qaeda focuses the vast degree of its operations. Um, want me to put a number on it? 90, 95%, 99% on the local, because that's what drives, that gives it the capability to plot and execute, train, plot and execute those foreign uh, or external attacks that we talk about. Without a Harasadin in Syria or a Shabab or an AQ, uh, AQAP, um, it's even more difficult for Al-Qaeda Central, Al-Qaeda Corps, Al-Qaeda General Command, whatever term you want to use for it, to execute those, those types of attacks. And Al-Qaeda's, um, I call it the General Command, Al-Qaeda General Command supports these affiliates knowing that it can generate those capabilities. So, so it's support for the local operations. It's General Command's support for the affiliates doesn't just support the local, it supports the global efforts as well. Um, that's just, uh, you know, my, my take on that. And uh, I'm curious, you know, any, any thoughts on that, Edmund? No, I completely agree with that, Bill. I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about it, the, you know, some of the most serious periods of international threat from, from, uh, from uh, these um, jihadi extremist groups have have existed when they're when they've had safe haven somewhere when they where they've controlled territory and they've been able to get themselves properly organized and then to generate the capability to project a threat and so i mean obviously that was true um at the time of 9 11 um and it was true in the case of uh, of isil when they when they were controlling territory in iraq and syria um and so um you can see that the Al-Qaeda strategic thinking here is, you know, we've got a safe haven in Afghanistan. We might be able to develop a, an increasingly um, robust safe haven in Somalia. We might be able to dominate enough territory to have a safe haven in Mali or Burkina Faso. Um, there was a time, of course, as you know, when they controlled a significant uh, amount of territory in Yemen. Um, and of course, it's difficult to hold on to territory because once you hold territory, it makes you a standing target. But the, the, the Al-Qaeda sort of long-established model has been to operate most confidently when they've got that sort of um, territorial um, security. And that's when it comes back to this point about the relationship with the Taliban and not embarrassing the Taliban. It would be no surprise if Al-Qaeda were to mount an international attack you know, over the next couple of years, um, you know, maybe it was maybe it would be an attack that uh, had its origins in Somalia, or maybe it would be an attack that had its origins in Yemen, as we've seen in the past. But as long as the fingerprints on that attack are not 
Afghan fingerprints, then the Taliban has deniability. They're, they're sheltering the al-Qaeda leadership. But, hey, it wasn't us. It was, it was someone else. I am laughing on this end um, because you literally, you know, read my mind the plausible deniability, and this is this is a feature for Al Qaeda outsourcing the attacks to the branches or affiliates, however you want to describe them. So, yeah, excellent analysis, Edmund. Your report goes on to note that there's three other um, terror groups within, and and obviously there's more than that within Afghanistan. But you focus in nicely on Jamaat Ansarullah. This is a Tajik terror group. Um, uh, you talk about the Tariki Taliban, Pakistan, or movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, as well as the um, the Turkestan Islamic Party. Um, you note that the Turkestan Islamic Party has reestablished its main base in Baglam province. Now, I'm going to – first, uh, before I get into the, the Turkestan Islamic Party, I love that you guys pointed out that Mahdi Asarlan, who is a um, – the, the one of the a commander for Jamaat Ansarullah. He is an ethnic, or actually, he's a Tajik citizen, I believe. Um, he's that he's in control of five districts in Badakhshan province. I did some reporting on that uh, earlier in the year, noting the same thing. So, um, this isn't now, and, and Jamaat Ansarullah is definitely, I wouldn't, I won't say it's an Al Qaeda affiliate, but it's in the Al Qaeda sphere. They take a lot of direction from it. Um, but the, uh, the Tariqa Taliban or the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, we've discussed this ad na- as nauseum and written about this in, at the Long War Journal. The close ties there are, um, between the Afghan and t- Pakistani Taliban as well as Al Qaeda are, have been well documented. That's no surprise. You note that there's between three and four thousand fighters from the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and inside of Afghanistan. So you have two foreign terror groups operating there. And then the other one, the last one I want to hone in, sorry, I don't mean to drone on here, but is the, uh, is the Turkestan Islamic party. Um, you note that they are active in Afghanistan. Now, Abdul, you mentioned Abdul Haq, Abdul Haq al-Turkistani. He was listed, uh, designated by, I believe it was the U.S. Treasury Department, U.S. government designated him. I believe it was 2007 and 2008. And in their designation, they identified him as a member of al-Qaeda's Executive Council or Shura Majlis. Um, I view the Turkestan Islamic Party as being, uh, subordinated to the, it's, its own group, but it's, but when your leader is a member of Al Qaeda's, uh, Shura Majlis, and I have no doubt that he in, in, in holds a senior position in Al Qaeda to this day. He, the Turkestan Islamic Party was very helpful in the, the Taliban takeover. Um, you know, uh, I'm curious what you think about that, um, where, where you put the TIP, the Turkestan Islamic Party, in the, um, in the sphere of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you sort of bring them up as a group, um, you know, as, as, you know as, as, a, as a set of groups, uh, Bill, because I think, I think that's really important. And it slightly brings me back to the neighbors point I was making earlier, because, you know, I do, th- I do think that one of the, one of the key dynamics uh, around Afghanistan in the near future has to be around the uh, whether the neighbours can uh, work together and exert meaningful pressure on the Taliban just to just to behave responsibly. Um, you know, the governing territory. You know, to govern it in a way that doesn't cause you know um, unacceptable uh, difficulties on the borders, difficulties for the neighbours, uh, and there's you know a whole bunch of things that are linked with that. You know illegal migration, um, organized crime, 
drug trafficking. Um, yeah, so it's you know you've got no choice if you if you have a border, you have to work with a country, uh, or you have to you have to work with the authorities on the other side of the border. So then you get this interesting point about this sort of group of or set of uh, of terrorist groups in Afghanistan. That are associated with the neighbouring countries, and you know, you talk about the uh, Turkestan Islamic Party, the association with, with China, um, the Jamaat uh, Ansarullah, the association with Tajikistan, TTP with Pakistan, and of course the IMU, uh, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, the association with Uzbekistan, um, and then there are there are others as well. As you rightly said, it's not just these few groups. Um, we've uh, we've counted um, we've counted uh, just over twenty. Um, uh, ter- you know, sort of um, terrorist groups uh, that are present in Afghanistan, um, and a number of them are um, Central Asian uh, in their um, in their makeup, and a number of them are Pakistani in their makeup. Um, so, what you have then is this slightly variable geometry of what each of these terrorist groups means in the relationship between the Taliban and the neighbouring country, and. Uh, you can see that in the case, you know, there's each of the neighbouring countries is requiring of the Taliban or asking of the Taliban that they prevent the terrorist group from uh, projecting a threat, you know, across the border and back into that country. And each country seems to feel a little differently about how comfortable they are with the efforts that the Taliban are making. And I think there is an element of comfort from China, the sort of sense that that the TIP uh, or ETIM, you know, as you know, Bill, the, sort of the, the nomenclature here is interesting, uh, whether to call it the East Turkestan Islamic Movement or the Turkestan Islamic Party, so ETIM, TIP. We tend to use the two uh, shortenings together just to express the fact that different member states prefer different terminology. Um, but uh, in that case, we saw some of those elements being moved westwards, away from Badakhshan, away from the corridor that uh, joins that that has a border with China Um, and so again that sort of point I made earlier about is the Taliban embrace of these groups is it a protective hug or is it a restraining hug and um, you know whilst whilst uh, a neighboring country might wish for these uh, individuals to be extradited and sent back and face prosecution if they don't think that's a realistic ask of the Taliban, they might settle for feeling that the Taliban has them under sufficient control that they don't present a present danger. So I think that's, you know, there's that case with the TIP. Um, that's, I think that Uzbekistan seems fairly comfortable with where things stand with the various Uzbek or Uzbek linked groups in Afghanistan and the uh, bilateral relationship between Uzbekistan and the Taliban at the moment looks relatively, um, uh, you know, it appears to be making progress. You know, the contacts appear to be uh, cordial and um, reasonably uh, constructive. Um, then you've got Tajikistan, which feels rather differently. They feel that the Taliban are instrumentalizing Jamaat Ansarullah against them. They have a much longer border than either Uzbekistan or China. Um, They have a very, very long border with Afghanistan. And uh, for a number of reasons, they feel very threatened by Jamaat Ansarullah. And then they have also another concern, which is 
oddly, I mean, it's not, it's, it's interesting to try and balance how they feel about these two things, but they also do feel that they have a vested interest in the Tajik, the ethnic Tajik components of the Afghan population uh, being treated decently. And of course, the Taliban is a Pashtun chauvinist movement, and it has treated the ethnic minorities very badly, including Taliban from those ethnic minorities. And so the Tajik sector, sector of the Afghan population feels beleaguered, overlooked, marginalized, and the Tajiks feel, you know, the government of Tajikistan feels some ownership in this. They, they, feel, they feel this is wrong and they feel that they, they want to put pressure uh, on, uh, on the Taliban to, uh, to be more inclusive. And indeed, that's a wider international demand of the Taliban that they that they actually um, practice a more more inclusive government or governance in Afghanistan. So, so that's the Tajik dynamic, which feels very different from the dynamic with either China or with um, or with um, Uzbekistan. And then you mentioned TTP, and TTP is the biggest of these groups by far. Um, and uh, and also, of course, the historic relationship between Pakistan and the Taliban and the Afghan Taliban is different. Um, it's much closer uh, than the historic relationship between uh, other neighbouring governments and the Taliban. But even so, this is a problem. And um, the, the sense of common cause between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban is a problem uh, in the relationship between the Afghan Taliban and, and the government in, in Islamabad. Um, because the TTP is a sworn enemy of the Pakistani state. And although there's, uh, you know, as you know, there have been discussions and, uh, and uh, truce, um, the demands the TTP is making of the Pakistani state are extreme demands and completely unacceptable to Islamabad. And so you've got a difficult triangular relationship there because uh, the government of Pakistan might prefer for the Afghan Taliban actually to hand over the TTP or to suppress the TTP. Um, but that relationship is a close relationship, and it's a close relationship between Sirajuddin Haqqani and the TTP. Uh, and they're not going to betray the TTP as they would see it, um, which, which makes for a problematic cross-border uh, relationship there. And there's another factor, I think, in the Afghan Taliban thinking with all of these groups, and this also applies to the TIP or the ETIM, um, and that is that the Afghan Taliban is afraid of defections to ISIL. They don't want to lose people to ISIL because they know that now that they're having to govern, they're having to make difficult decisions. It's very easy to be an insurgency. You know, you, you, you know you, you're fighting. You have an easy message. We fight. And if you're either with us or you're against us, and if you're against us, we'll kill you. When you're governing, you can't quite say that. That's not that's not a tenable um, message for anyone who is an administration. And so their worry, of course, is that as they make compromises and as they make enemies, that people will defect and join ISIS. And some people have done so. Uh, and of course, this has been a problem also amongst the uh, ethnic Uzbek and Tajik Taliban who have felt that their position has been weakened since the Taliban came to power in Afghanistan. And some of them have defected and joined ISIL. And so here is an element in the way that the Taliban is treating these various foreign terrorist groups inside Afghanistan. Yes, we we want to make sure that they don't cause us undue 
difficulties with our neighbours. But no, we don't want to make them so disillusioned that they defect from the sort of the broad, uh, the broad sort of alignment with the Taliban and they join ISIL. Yeah, that is uh, just fantastic analysis there. There's uh, um, quite a lot to unpack, but I think you, you did so quite well. This is the, to me, is one of the big issues of how the Taliban navigate this, um, the, the problem of governments and how it, you know, it doesn't want to make an enemy of China. It doesn't want to make an enemy of Uzbekistan, of Pakistan. I think that the, the Pakistan situation has always, you know, there's sort of a nod and a wink from the Pakistani state that it's always understand the TTT problem. The TTP problem is something that it has to just deal with. Um, because the, the movement of Taliban in Pakistan played a critical role in helping the, um, the Afghan Taliban take over the state. So I'd always felt that that was a sacrifice that Pakistan um, had to make it, you know, it was sort of built into the equation, but China to me is the real big one. And I think the Uyghur, Uyghur defections to the Islamic state, because as you note, that simplistic message of, you know, uh, of the Islamic state is it's very appealing. Um, You know, this is, this is where I had said it's never a zero sum game right? When it comes to the strategy, right? That long-term strategy makes Al-Qaeda dangerous, but it's susceptible at times like this. Um, but, you know, we'll see how the Taliban manages it. It's uh, it's very interesting. I've got one or two more questions for you here. Just, just before you, just before yeah, you do go, I mean, just, yeah. just, uh, just it's worth remembering, of course, and of course you remember it well, but, but the TTP was always one of the big feeder groups to, uh, to ISIL as well. I mean, a lot, when ISIL was going through its big expansion sort of five, five years ago or so, um, a lot of the new people coming into into uh, into into ISIL were they were they were ex TTP, um, so it's you know it's, it's a real phenomenon. It's definitely it's definitely an issue. But there is also, and I think it was implicit in your response just then, uh, and it goes back to something we were discussing earlier. We have to be really careful not to allow a narrative to take over where ISIL is the only threat or the overwhelming threat, because if you if you take that view in Afghanistan, then it leads to a complete distortion of the situation. Now, first of all, it's a far too simple, simplistic a statement. But ISIL K is not that big. You know, it's sort of you know, maybe three thousand strong. You know, some people would put it up at four thousand. But you know, we're not. We're talking about a group that, whilst it's substantial, um, it's not anywhere near a match for the uh, for the Afghan Taliban. And uh, at the moment, its cross-border efforts have been very limited. We've seen, you know, attempted missile strikes on Tajik territory, Uzbek territory, but these didn't really achieve anything. They were they were sort of kind of kind of um, kind of um, failed attempts. Um, certain amount of menacing cross-border activity into Pakistan, um, but. If you project ISIL Khorasan as the biggest global threat emanating from Afghanistan, it can lead to that dangerous conclusion, which is, well, anyone who is ISIL's enemy must be a potential friend. And that leads to the wishful thinking that maybe we can do counterterrorism with the Taliban. Maybe, you know, maybe Al-Qaeda aren't all that bad after all. And that, that, that is very, very dangerous thinking. Yeah, we actually saw this creep into into the U.S. military, particularly against uh, counter Islamic State operations in I want to say 2016, 17, 18 in Nangarhar Province, where 
you essentially had the U.S. military um, serving as the air arm for the Taliban as it took the fight to to um, the Islamic State. And I've heard members of, of the U.S. military who were involved in this who would openly state the Taliban aren't our en- enemy here. It's the Islamic State. The Islamic State is the real threat. And I've always felt that was dangerous. I think that that this sort of thinking not exclusively, but, you know, chipped away at the idea and, and, and gave the Trump administration, you know, fuel to, um, state, you know, to negotiate with the Taliban, to cut that withdrawal deal and ultimately lead to the, um, U.S. withdrawal. Now, again, it's, I, I'm sure that's, it's never, it's not at the top of my list of the reasons that there's a ton of things that led to that deal that led to negotiations with the Taliban, a lot of bad analysis, a misunderstanding of the Taliban uh, and the Al Qaeda and denial of the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship. There were far more, but there was certainly, there's certainly a, 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 a strain of thought that the Islamic state was the real enemy here and the, the Taliban could be someone we would work with. So um, with that, we're going to move on. Um, I got, I think I got one or two more questions for you, Edmund here. And uh, I just wanted to, um, Go over you. I'm going to quote from the report again. It says several member states note that ETIM, TI slash TIP is continuing to strengthen its relationships with TTP and Jamaat Ansarula, augment its military, augmenting its military training on the manufacture and use of improvised explosive devices, focusing on morale and the planning to carry out terrorist attacks against Chinese interests in the region when the time is right. End quote. Um, as we just talked about here, right? TTP close with uh, with the Afghan Taliban, also close with Al Qaeda. Some of the bin, bin Laden documents notes that how Al Qaeda was helping and directing the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and writing its, its founding charter, um, essentially giving orders to the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. Um, we talked about the Turkestan or the ETM, ETIM, TIP, um, relationship with Al Qaeda and then Jamaat ruler relationship with the, so, you know, I, I think that the, mem- the states that are, are trying to find, and I understand the need for being pragmatic, but I, to me, it's kicking the can down the road. You could see these groups are organizing, working together, um, in, in order to increase its capabilities. And I just think that's a dangerous, um, uh, you know, you get, this is the issue of safe haven in a nutshell, right? You give these groups time to work together, to coordinate, and then you give what, uh, you, then you imply Al Qaeda strategic patience. Hey, we're work, we're working on all of the things you laid that out so well, Edmund. Um, you know, we're working on, we're planning the, the, the attacks for when the time is right, as you, as you note in report. That type of strategic patience is dangerous and I think it can, can turn around and bite countries like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and China. Um, if they, you know, this is why I just wonder, you know, how, how much can you really work with the Taliban? How much can you trust them to, um, to, uh, you know, what did you call it? What kind of hug? You, you called it a, uh, uh, yes, a, a protective hug or a, protect, a restraining yeah. hug. A restraining. How long will the Taliban restraining hug work? Particularly when it fears, as you perfectly stated, defections um, from not just the Taliban, but all of these groups to the Islamic State, if it does that restraining hug far too long. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the short answer to that, Bill, is you can't trust them at all. The Taliban are 100% untrustworthy, but uh, that doesn't mean to say that they're not subject to leverage 
and to their own, their perception of their own interests and their own best way forward being influenced by how decisively the international community works together to put pressure on them so i, I think that's 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 really what we're saying it's not that uh, it's not it's not that anyone should trust the taliban it's that uh, you know the purpose of our report is precisely to demonstrate um, that much of what they say is untrue um, but uh, but then of course the key the key question is whether the international community can come together and push them in the correct direction no well said um the last question actually i have two two more questions for you i got, I got 100 questions for you Edmund, as you know as you know but uh um we'll we'll leave it at two the um your report note um talks about uh succession a little bit here um, you note that the next in line is, I'll directly uh, quote from here. Next in line of senior, seniority after Al Zawahiri are Saif Al Adel, Abdullah Rahman Al Maghrebi, Yazid Mubrek. He is the, uh, head of the Islamic, uh, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and Ahmed Diary. Um, he is also the mirror of Shabab. Um, the report, you know, in this, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that Saif Al Adel is may possibly be Zawahiri's successor. Abdul Al Rahman Al Maghrebi, very interesting character, as uh, and uh, longtime Al Qaeda leader, head of Al Shahab. But you know, you have the head of AQIM and and Al Shahab in the uh, possible in the line of secession here, basically. Um, is this a new phenomena or is this something, you know, I saw a lot of analysts out there marveling over this. Um, I, you know, I dismiss, I dismiss that as bad analysis. We've seen that in the past. What's your opinion on that? Is this a new phenomena or is this more of the same for Al Qaeda? So it's new information, but it's not a new phenomenon. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, what we include in our reports is it's often, it's often based on whatever, whatever we've received that is we consider to be reliable or significant new information. So this was new to have these five set out in this order. Uh, I mean, obviously we knew that the top three were clear. Um, it, we knew, we knew it's, it's, it's always been uh, pretty clear ever since the uh, death of Abu Muhammad al-Masri um, that this one, two, three order, although I suppose we must change it again now because number one has gone. Um, but, 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 you know, this is a well-established top three. Um, what was new was to have uh, Mebrak at four and Duria at five. Um, but it's long been established that uh, the Al-Qaeda leadership is networked around the world, um, in, you know, in multiple locations, and that they managed to do that. And, of course, it, again, it comes back to something we were saying earlier about the contrast with ISIL. Uh, you would never have that situation in ISIL, absolutely incon- inconceivable that the head of uh, IS West Africa province would be, you know, sort of somewhere in the uh, top five or top 10 ISIL global global leadership. The ISIL number one will be Iraqi, number two will be Iraqi, number three will be Iraqi, and you might find a Syrian somewhere. Maybe. It's a very different sort of um, approach. But in the case of Al-Qaeda, yeah, we've always known this. And, of course, there are a number of uh, recently deceased um, terrorists who were on that sort of uh, top leadership council of, uh, of Al-Qaeda, you know, people like um, uh, Drukdel, the Algerian, uh, who was there before Mebrak, um, and uh, Heishi, um, you know, so, so this is not new. You could always have a, a new Al-Qaeda leader 
um, who is who is not an Egyptian. You know, obviously, the current leader is Egyptian. The number two uh, is Egyptian as well. Um, but uh, Osama bin Laden, of course, was was was, was Saudi, um, and uh, it could easily, it could just as easily be a Yemeni, could just as easily be an Algerian. Um, so that I think it's 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 not new, but it is interesting, um, and where it gets particularly interesting now is that with Zawahiri dead, of course, they now need to do something about the succession. It's one thing to have a batting order. It's another when you actually have to, your batter is out and the next batsman has to appear. Um, and so um, now, will it be safe for Ladl? Well, uh, we believe he's in Iran. Um, we, there's a sort of a broad consensus of member states that have told us that he's been in Iran for some time. And um, could he be the leader of Al-Qaeda while remaining in Iran? That would be a very surprising thing, I think. Um, so would he leave Iran? If he left Iran, where would he go? Um, you might say almost certainly Afghanistan, given that uh, the Taliban were perfectly happy to play host to Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul. So why not Ayman al-Zawahiri's successor? But I suppose we must acknowledge the possibility that there's going to be a deterrent operating here, that the Taliban are going to be looking at what happened with Zawahiri and think, can we afford for that to happen again? And so maybe not so clear that SAIF could go to uh, Afghanistan. Um, and, of course, there's another question with SAIF, which is, you know, would Iran allow him to leave or would they prefer to keep him, you know, as it were, as a... Uh, you know, not 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 exactly a hostage, but somebody who um, somebody who uh, you know. At any rate, there's 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 then significant pressure on Al Qaeda not to uh, not to do things that are hostile to Iran Iranian interests. Um, if the leader or if if, if senior figures are um, are uh, under Iranian control, so that's an interesting. We don't don't know how that's going to come out. We don't know what the uh, outcome will be. But the calculation for SAFE is probably the same calculation then you would have to make for Abdurrahman al-Maghribi. So there's no reason to think that the next leader will be Abdurrahman al-Maghribi because he's after SAFE in the pecking order and he doesn't have any geographical locational advantages in terms of where he is. So it seems unlike, so it seems likely to be, if it's not SAFE, it's also up unlikely to be uh, Abdurrahman al-Maghribi. And that would then take you to uh, to Mebrak or Anabi, um, the Algerian. Um, and that's interesting then, because how would that work? Where would he base himself? Um, same questions, um, but at least in his case, he, uh, he probably has more options in terms of, um, you know, he's probably, you know, I think we can, we can assume that he has some, some freedom of movement uh, if he wants to leave his present location. Yeah. And, and, you know, if they do decide to stay, I mean, you know, the situation is pretty good in, in, um, in the Sahel and then, and, or if it's dairy in, in Somalia, right. I mean, you have essential safe havens carved out in, in, uh, air, in various areas. It would be re really interesting to see if the, um, how the U.S. would react to um, Mabrak or, or Diary being named leader of Al Qaeda? I'm kind of kind of rooting for that just to see how that changes the narrative and how it how it affects uh, counterterrorism operations. But it's very likely that the 
say Valadol or, or McGrebby are, are going to take the helm here. What, one final question, and thank you for that answer. You know, that, that, that's sort of one of my bugaboos. These, this, you know, these tired narratives come out where this is new. This is, this is exciting. It's not. We, like you said, we can, we can go down a list of uh, probably a dozen or two senior Al Qaeda leaders from Yemen and some, and, and Africa and, um, and elsewhere, um, that have been in the, the, uh, that have, that have taken top leader, top leadership positions for Al Qaeda. Um, it's, it, I think it's a, it, not just the way of Al Qaeda, not just the, you know, th- survival after the U.S. drone campaign in, 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 uh, in Pakistan and as well as in, uh, in, in the counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan. But I do think it's a way for them to diversify their leadership and, and have buy-in from all the, the branches. And, um, the, the fact that, uh, you know, that an AQIM that, or that an Algerian or a Somali is in that line of secession, it puts skin in the game for these organizations. It tells them that they're, they're part of a global group and not just an Iraqi uh, led organization. So Edmund, I have one last question for you. I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball here. Um, what do you think the future is of, of Al Qaeda and, um, particularly, do you think Afghanistan will remain the hub for Al Qaeda's operations? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I mean, you know, I guess we 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 sort of were moving into that area, weren't we, when we talked about the leadership and and where a new leader would move? And I guess we, you know, that's going to be an important indicator, of course. You know, if we see the new if we see the new leader go to Afghanistan, we may not see it immediately, but you know, if we if we if we establish that the new leader has gone to Afghanistan or has established himself in Afghanistan, that would tell us something, I think. Um, because you know, there is this interesting question about how the Taliban reacts to what happened. Um, you know, this is a major embarrassment for them. Uh, and sure, they'll be looking at damage limitation and figuring out what does that mean for uh, you know their um, for their uh, international engagement. Um, and also, you know, what does it mean in terms of the, um, you know, sort of uh, their future or their immediate future um, approach to uh, to Al Qaeda? Um, so I think I think the jury has to be out on that a little bit. But the fundamentals that we discussed earlier of the Taliban being sympathetic to Al Qaeda, unwilling to expel them, uh, and uh, and untrustworthy um, as you know as um, partners in addressing al-Qaeda, I mean, those those are obvious. Those are obviously true and I mean, very well established and very well articulated, of course, by the United States in saying, yes, you know, um, this is what we've done, this is how we've done it. And no, of course, we didn't tell the Taliban in advance. So, you know, that, that I think is all very, very clear. And we just have to see what the implications of that are uh, in terms of um, the the sort of the immediate challenge of the succession for al-Qaeda and how they behave in Afghanistan. But I anticipate that they will continue to use Afghanistan as a safe haven, as a training ground, as a recruiting ground for fundraising. Um, uh, so I, 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 think that, I think that's pretty well established. And then the question is, what, how do the various uh, regional affiliates develop, you know, do, which ones of them thrive and which ones of them struggle. And, you know, the, Yemen is a, a very interesting case in point. You know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula used to be regarded as the most threatening Al-Qaeda affiliate. It's rather less so now, but but it could become that again. You know, the situation in Yemen remains 
you know, deeply unstable. And, um, and therefore, you know, if Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula can get organized and, uh, and, and then start to uh, reconstitute its capability, that's, that's, that's a definite risk. Um, I, I, I find myself worrying most about Syria, not entirely in the Al-Qaeda context, but just because Syria is so, it's, it's, it, 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 the, the, the prospects of, stabilize, of you know, peace in Syria and stabilization and rebuilding some kind of, um, uh, you know, some kind of um, horizon of expectations for the Syrian people. Um, they're so they're so remote, uh, and so you can see that the problems in Syria can escalate in all sorts of ways. They can escalate in Idlib. They can escalate elsewhere. Um, and um, so, so I think I think we have to acknowledge that Syria is a, a big problem. From an Al Qaeda point of view, but also, of course, from a uh, from an ISIL point of view, um, and then Africa, and, and I think that's that's where I would probably end my comment, which is I worry a great deal about Al Shabaab. I think Al Shabaab is a long, well established financial the Taliban of Africa. Um, and, yeah, and that's yeah. And, and exactly that's a exactly financially secure ambitious and virulent organization and yeah the worry that they're inspired by what happened in afghanistan that they would seek to do the same thing in somalia uh, or in parts of somalia um i think that is very worrying it's worrying for the regional states but i think i think we, if we're paying attention it should be worrying for us as well because you know al-shabaab is perfectly capable of uh, developing a, a more ambitious external operational capability um, and um, and then and then Jainim, the Janet Nusrat al Islam, while Muslimin, the uh, Al Qaeda coalition that come that sort of broadly comes under Mebrak, the um, the guy we were just talking about, the Algerian Al Qaeda leader. Um, he, sort of, uh, there's a link between him and this group, which is primarily in Mali. Um, and I think the worry about that group is that it's that's where you see this. Al Qaeda strategic patience and political intelligence at its most threatening. Jainim isn't that big, but it's gradually been eating away at any sense of security or any sense of meaningful governance in Mali, to the point where you know the 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 the, the writ of, of of Bamako doesn't really run uh, in large swathes of Mali, and then systematically through allies it's been eating into Burkina Faso to the point where again the writ of Ouagadougou doesn't really extend very much around Burkina Faso and we see some signs of it nibbling into Senegal, nibbling into Cote d'Ivoire, nibbling into Togo, Benin, Um, there's also you know sort of uh, contagion into, um, uh, into western Niger and an interesting question about whether whether there's potential contagion into northwestern Nigeria, and I think that sort of the way that Jainim operates, Jainim and its allies, the way that they concentrate on existing fault lines, on polarizing society, exacerbating existing conflicts, radicalizing society, intimidating any forces of moderation. You you drive out head teachers hospital administrators, uh, magistrates, anybody who is a moderating influence, you intimidate them and you drive them out. 
and ultimately they're replaced by radicals. And it's it's shifting the whole sort of pH of society in this part of the Western Sahel uh, towards radicalization. And, and my worry there is that set against the context of those relatively weak jurisdictions, um, that that is a that is a serious incubating threat. And initially, of course, it's a it's a, it's a localized or regional threat. But again, you know, you can imagine a situation in which that generates a safe haven that then leads to the regeneration of an external operational capability. Yeah, Edmund, uh, I couldn't agree more on Africa. I think this is the most underlooked uh, threat that we face. Um, and, you know, Syria has been the Arab Spring uh, turned into very quickly turned into an Arab winter there. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's just very difficult to see any, anything positive. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap it up here, Edmund. This is, I really appreciate your time. So as we noted, you're the outgoing coordinator for the United Nations, uh, sanctions and monitoring team. What are your next steps, Edmund? Could you tell, tell us where, where are you going to be? Or do you even know yet? Well, well, Bill, I, I mean, I, I feel that I have a lot of unfinished business in counterterrorism. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, my, my last job has left me sort of deeply interested in this area and wanting to continue to contribute in this area. Uh, on the other hand, of course, you know, I, I'm also coming off being kind of institutionalized really for, for nearly 40 years. You know, I first joined the uh, UK Foreign Service in 1984. And really, I've sort of, you know, worked for a big organization constantly ever since. And so I'm going to take a little bit of a sabbatical. I want to take some time to consider my options. Um, I've already started, uh, you know, doing um, doing some part-time work, um, just sort of, just, just, just sort of, you know, um, just for fun, really working, you know, I mean, obviously, podcasts of this kind is a good example of that. But, you know, a little bit of work with the counter-extremism project, a little bit of work with uh, the Sufan Center, a little bit of work with uh, Middle East Institute in Washington. And um, I want to take my time and figure out how best to contribute going forward, you know, whether that should be uh, in, a, in an institutional context, you know, working with a, uh, a government or an international organization or, uh, or a, a large private sector body. Or whether to, uh, or whether to, whether, whether to sort of do more of this kind of, um, uh, of this kind of um, punditry, if you like. You're blessed, Edmund, and that you could take your time to to plan those next steps. I uh, I wish you, of course, wish you all the best, and you are free to be uh, do punditry on this show uh, anytime you wish. We're going to get you back on shortly um, and to talk about the Islamic State uh, portion of this report, of course. But yeah, we you you are always the door is always open here. We uh, I love your analysis. Um, it's just a pleasure talking with you. And look, the next time you're here on the East Coast, uh, look me up. Uh, we got to got to get breakfast, lunch or dinner again. Um, it really was a pleasure to meet you. You know, COVID really set us back there a little bit. We tried several times and uh, glad we were able to pull it off before you left New York City. Yeah, me too, Bill. It was a, it was a huge pleasure. This has been a huge pleasure. And I really look forward to um, part two on the uh, isolate elements of the report. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Thanks again to our guest, Edmund Fitton Brown, true professional. Reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.